Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. Leah Pennyman's mission is to end racism and injustice in our food system by increasing farmland stewardship by people of color, promoting equity in food access, and training the next generation of activist farmers. Her new book, Farming While Black, has been called a revolutionary work that opens important doors by Civil Eats and a brilliant guide by Mark Bittman. In this interview, Leah explains the effects of miseducation around the contributions of people of color to agriculture and food science, and how the decline in land ownership and participation in agriculture from these groups affects us all. We also discuss the importance of ritual and ceremony in reconnecting people to the land and their cultures, and how anyone can become an ally in transforming the inequitable system we currently have. Go to chelseagreen.com and enter code EDGE30, that's capital E-D-G-E, number 30, at checkout to receive a special Abundant Edge podcast discount on the print edition of Farming While Black. Chelsea Green Publishing, cultivating change from the ground up. I'll turn things over now to Leah. Hey, Leah, thanks so much for taking time to be on the podcast with us today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, I've got so many things I want to ask you about your book, Farming While Black. So let's start first at the beginning and talk about how did you first become aware of the massive injustices in our food system? And how did that lead to starting a farm of your own in Petersburg, New York? 
That's a huge question. I mean, I would say that understanding injustice in the food system is inherent in being a black woman farmer. And so I remember, you know, starting to farm as a teenager and quickly realizing that almost all of the sustainable farming conferences and books and literature were white dominated. You know, I would go to the Northeast Organic Farming Association conference and all of the speakers and authors, you know, didn't look like me. And so I started to question whether I really had a place in the movement. Uh, similarly, you know, living much of my life um, in areas under food apartheid, where which is a system of segregation that's race-based, where certain people experience food opulence and others experience food scarcity. And I was on the scarcity side of things. You know, I experienced also from the consumer end what it's like not to have access to fresh fruits and vegetables and seeing chronic illness like diabetes, obesity, and heart disease plague my community. Um, so I had that uh, that felt sense. But of course, the way that institutional racism works is we just figure it's our own individual problem and, and don't see the systems at, at first. And it was through, you know, a lot of research and getting connected to others in the black farming community that I realized that this was a historic pattern and, and an institutional pattern and not just my, my personal experience. So going forward from that, what made you decide to take action and start your own farm to provide for the community that was underserved? Um, well, I loved farming, and so I wanted to make a life of it despite all of this. And my partner, Jonah, and I and our two young children, Nishima and Emmett, who at the time were two years old and newborn, we were all living in the south end of Albany, uh, which is a neighborhood under food apartheid and really struggling to get fresh vegetables for our kiddos. You know, the only way, because there was no community gardens, no supermarkets, um, in our area and we didn't have a car. So the only way to get vegetables was to uh, join this CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. And the cost of it was more than our rent. And we had to walk 2.2 miles you know, up a hill to the friend's meeting house to pick up the share and pile it on top of the two-year-old in the stroller and you know, hang the bags from the handles and then walk back down to our home. And that experience combined with our neighbors who uh, you know, also could not access fresh food and we're asking us, can you start the farm for the people? Can you find a way to get fresh food into our neighborhood? That was what that was the immediate catalyst for Soul Fire Farm. So it was 2006 when we found the land. We really believe the land chose us. It was a marginal degraded hillside in uh, Grafton, New York, sometimes known as Petersburg, New York, um, when we started to to actually you know, get the farm going, build up the soil, build our home and so forth. And we opened in 2011 with a food distribution program right back to our neighbors who originally asked for Soul Fire to be born. Let's kind of get to the meat of this by talking a little bit about how nearly all of us have been miseducated to think that nearly all ag agricultural innovations came from Caucasian farmers and researchers when that certainly isn't the case. Yeah, that's a, a profound miseducation and I think really dangerous because, you know, a lot of folks, um, those of us who are black and brown, We've only been taught that our relationship to agriculture is through the lens of oppression, through slavery and sharecropping. And, and certainly um, that history is true and it's a dark stain on, on the DNA of the U.S. food system. But it's in the context of tens, and thousands, tens of thousands of years of noble innovation on land. You know, everything from Cleopatra being obsessed with vermicomposting and had a whole cadre of priests whose full-time... Uh, career was dedicated to the study of the habits of earthworms and and the fertility of the Nile River Valley was very, very much due to the worm castings of these these cultivated you know worms 
up through, you know, in more recent times, the incredible research out of Tuskegee University in Alabama um, that kicked off the organic farming movement. You know, George Washington Carver gave us leguminous intercropping and cover crops and the idea of diverse horticulture and large-scale composting systems. You know, also, also of Tuskegee, Booker T. Watley gave us the CSA, which he called the Clientele Membership Club, as well as Pick Your Own. And so there's you know, and hundreds more. And so there's just so many noble innovations out of Black Indigenous community that often we're taught are either ahistorical or, or have European origins, as you mentioned. And how can we start to shift this paradigm and empower people to get back on the land and take ownership of sort of the advancement as a country and uh, within this infrastructure, in some cases, which is holding a lot of people back? But there are there are quite a few sort of roadblocks to to getting back on the land and producing for yourself. What have you found as some of the the stepping stones to get people back involved with their food system? That's such a good and huge question, right? Because all of us have different intersections and barriers. But um, I like to think of ourselves as the returning generation of farmers. A lot of us um, our grandparents or great-grandparents fled the red clays of Georgia during the Great Migration, which was really a refugee crisis for black farmers who were being targeted by uh, governmental discrimination and outright violence from white supremacist groups for the audacity to own land and try to stop being sharecroppers. And, and we're a part of the generation that's realizing that something's missing in that. You know, when we put layers of concrete between ourselves and the living earth, you know, between ourselves and the dwelling place of our ancestors, there's, there's an ache, there's a gap there, um, something that, you know, that we're longing to remember that we can't quite name. And it's not so much that our generation needs to be convinced or empowered, you know, we we do farmer training here at Soulfire, and we have waiting lists that are hundreds of people long for every program. So the desire is there. And a lot of times, you know, the skills are there as well. But as you mentioned, there are institutional barriers, you know, Right now, according to the most recent USDA census, over 95% of the rural land is owned by white folks. And this is this is a peak. You know, in 1910, 14% was owned by black people and, and people were driven off of their land. Um, and so if you don't have land, obviously you can't farm. And so we really look, have to look at reparations. We have to look at giving back what was stolen from indigenous and black people so that we can have the foundations in order to build our own farms. You know, similarly with uh, the resources that are distributed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture in terms of crop insurance, um, crop allotments and and grants and loans and those types of supports, those disproportionately still go to white farmers even after the successful lawsuits against the USDA for mm. its, its legacy of discrimination. And so we have to look at, you know, resources, power and land. How do we get those um, to the descendants of the people from whom those things were stolen? Absolutely. Now, I love the activist message in this book, but a huge portion of it is actually dedicated to practical information on everything from how to acquire land and resources, to planning crop rotation, restoring degraded land, and generally running a proper farm business, among other things. (laughs) So why are these practical aspects so important to achieving equality in the food system? Yeah, you know, I don't have any patience for theoretical or armchair or Twitter activism. It's like, what are we actually doing on the ground? Not just what are we talking about and thinking about, right? And and so that's why that practical stuff is at the core. And this is not a new idea, of course. You know, look, you look at the Black Panther Party, um, 
who is often known in popular culture or in white society for their militancy, for their willingness and ability to defend themselves with arms against police br brutality. But most of the Black Panther's time was actually spent, you know, feeding 20,000 children free breakfast in Oakland and running health clinics and providing transportation and so on and so forth. And so we also think at, of our work at Soul Fire Farm as really being rooted in that very tangible concrete survival program. You know, we grow food for almost 400 people, we deliver it to their doorsteps every Wednesday. It's chock full of nutrients and minerals and protein and everything you need for a complete diet. And, and that's foundational. Like if we never did anything else, that would be, you know, the most important core of our work. And we want to share that message. It's like, yes, change policy and absolutely organize and do all the healing work. That's very important. But that is overlaid and dependent upon a foundation of, of, of doing the real work on the land, you know, like saving your seed and fixing your soil and sequestering carbon. All of this is, um, is the way that we truly heal, heal our relationship with earth and, and recreate a food system that is healthy and sustainable for everyone. I really love that. And let's talk about something you just mentioned there, the healing from trauma. How in your program and on your farm do you address some of the institutional aspects that have caused trauma in, in the communities that you address through interaction with the land? Yeah, this has been a huge learning process for us because at first we naively thought that we would just offer training programs that went over this practical stuff, you know, cation exchange capacity and uh, cover crop rotations and, and all of this. And we would do this and time and again, you know, people had a lot of really deep emotions come up when they were at the farm. Uh, feelings of fear and loneliness, being in a predominantly rural white landscape, um, being triggered by just being on a farm and having these, you know, cellular memories of plantation life. And so we thought we need to really back up and figure out how we're going to address this because the land was the scene of the crime, as Chris Bolden Newsom says. Um, but of course, the land is not not the criminal. You know, the land is just where this all took place. And the land is, is actually a source of sustenance and healing. And so we decided to, you know, lean on our traditions as black people, our indigenous traditions of how to heal. And this has to do with song and dance, spiritual bath, storytelling, um, and, uh, and, and making offering to the land and listening to messages fr from the land. And so we started incorporating, not forcing this upon people, but really offering it to folks when they come to the farm for training programs that we have this toolkit of ways of dealing with land-based trauma and you're welcome to engage with them to the extent that you're comfortable with. Um, and it's been so profound. I mean, people really walking away from their experience here on the lands, whether it's a few days or a few months saying like, this is what freedom looks, tastes, smells like. Like I'm, I'm no longer gonna settle for anything less than being my full self because I'm finally remembering the things I didn't know that I forgot. Um, and that's, that's moving beyond just the region of the mind in terms of what we're doing, but into the whole, you know, the soul, the spirit, the body um, is learning as well at Soulfire. And how can other, especially young people, get involved with these transformative uh, experiences and reconnections with the land, even if they're unable to go out to your farm and work directly with you? Well, that was one of the big ideas with Farming Well Black. You know, it's like, we didn't want to gatekeep this knowledge and this learning that is not just ours at Soulfire, but really is the legacy of this, our ancestors and the whole Black Indigenous farming community. Um, so with Farming While Black, we tried to put as much information as we could into our page count limit so that people could 
you know, engage with this on their own. So like chapter three is all about spirituality and, and different rituals and songs that you can do and, and things like that. Um, but of course, you know, people can come to our farm, they can apply for our programs. And then we also have increasingly a network of alumni all around the country who are offering similar things. And we, we did our best to like list them out in the book and list them on our website so that uh, we can decentralize and really act more like mycelium, you know, the fungal hyphae under the forest that are sharing knowledge and resources rather than trying to concentrate it just in one place so that you have to go to one place to get it all. Well, let's explore that a little bit more because ritual and sort of celebration, especially around land-based activities like harvests and, you know, solstices, has fallen out of our culture in all aspects, not just in marginalized communities, but especially there, like you said, being pushed away from those resources to begin with. What are some of these rituals and... Um, and celebrations and processes that are helping you and your group sort of reconnect on a whole nother level to the land. Yeah, so I'll just share a brief story to contextualize that. When I was living in Ghana, West Africa, um, doing some work with farmers and also receiving spiritual mentorship from the Queen Mothers, the Manye there in um, Odumasi Krobo, they had asked me incredulously, like, is it true that in the United States, people, farmers will plant a seed and they will not pour libation, they will not make offering, they will not sing any song, pray any prayer, and expect that seed to mature into a plant. Um, and of course, that's probably very commonplace here. And they just shook their heads and were like, that's why y'all are sick. You know, that's why <laughs> your mm -hmm. food, maybe it nourishes your body, but, but, but not your whole being, um, and certainly not the land. And so we, we've taken that really seriously. And it is, it is challenging. Like we are so, um, trained in the society to just think of the land and the earth in terms of a transactional relationship as a, a material being and not, not truly a sovereign living entity. Um, so, so we have to keep reminding ourselves, but, you know, for example, every fall we do a harvest festival called Manje Yam, which comes out of the Haitian tradition. And Manje Yam is a celebration of the yam. Um, true yams don't grow in our climate, but um, black Americans have used the sweet potato as our substitute. So, you know, we, we honor the sweet potato. And, and one of my favorite parts of the ritual is um, we do this kind of, I guess you call it a spiritual reenactment or a spiritual journey back to the land of our ancestors, which is called Guinea. And the way we do that is we lay banana leaves all over the floor and we roll on them from west to east and east represents Guinea, the land of the ancestors where you get your, you know, spiritual refill or re-up for the year and then you roll back. And the banana, you know, there's, there's many metaphysical layers to why the banana leaf and so on and so forth. But what is so fun about it is like, children go crazy for this ritual because they're like rolling around on the floor and getting all tangled up in these these leaves and it, it smells really rich and um, we're singing songs while we roll and so it's you know it's both this like spiritual spiritually fulfilling exercise but it's also a joyful intergenerational um, opportunity to play uh, so I, I love Manjayam it's my favorite harvest festival what a beautiful example. Yeah, this is something that we're trying really hard to do on our regenerative homestead model here in Guatemala as well, because we live in an indigenous Mayan town that has lost many of its traditions, though mm. it still retains the language. And 
one of the things that we're trying to integrate in with our model here is sort of reinvigorating the traditions of celebrations that people had with Original Harvest before it turned into slash and burn agriculture on steep slopes in the mountains of where we are. And realizing that that's an essential component to actually being able to serve the community aspect of what we do. I hmm. I think it's really inspiring to hear examples like that as well. So something I, I so appreciate you sharing that and something that I learned in researching this book, um, because I too, you know, studied environmental science in college and slash and burn agriculture is like the enemy of biodiversity and the enemy of the climate. Um, but I was really challenged when I started looking into that to understand that that Sweden ag agriculture, which is called slash and burn by its opponents, when done in pre-colonial times was actually super sustainable because people had large tracts of land such that they could, you know, clear and burn an area only about once every 10 to 30 years. So there was a complete regeneration of the ecosystem. And because you had those deep rooted trees, you know, you had um, a profound carbon sink and that it was a, a carbon negative form of agriculture. And only when white colonizers took over people's land and pushed them into smaller areas did Sweden agriculture really become unsustainable because the rotations were shortened to just a few years. And so it just caused me to, again, um, just as as Europeans often demonize our, our religions or reduce them to animism and group them all together or say they're devil worship, also our traditional forms of agriculture, you know, Europeans with their, you know, spectacles and clipboards are like, oh, that's totally unsustainable. You need to do it this way. Um, so I just ha I'm just pointing that out because I had to challenge myself to in my my Western education and framework not to just dismiss indigenous ways of, of growing food. No, you're absolutely right. I'm so glad that you brought that up because it, it did make really good ecological sense in a totally different context. And right, as right. people were pushed away from their land and like you said, having to cultivate smaller tracts and the cash crops that they were incentivized to grow were much higher turnover annuals that degraded the soil to begin with. And then they were pushed up even into the more marginal lands where the slopes were really steep and the erosive forces in the rainy season were really high. That's where we get to sort of a bastardized version of a perfectly good indigenous solution that now is something that's uh, causing a lot of soil loss. But I'm, I'm very glad that you brought that up. Yeah, thank you. So there are so many parallels here. And this is one of the things I love most about the book that you wrote in healing the land and healing the people and their connection to it. You've put much more of a focus on a regenerative style of agriculture, which to this day is not very well practiced, though it has incredibly deep roots in indigenous cultures. Can you talk about some of the essential sort of techniques and practices that, that you uh, advocate for on your farm and some of the parallels that it has for, for healing at, a, at the community and the heart level? Oh, wow. You know, I hadn't really thought about it in terms of that parallel or metaphor. So I'll do my best. But um, some of the practices we use on our farm, and again, we try to root everything in some way to an Afro or Afro indigenous practice. Um, one is intercropping. And so uh, folks are probably familiar with the three sisters, corn, beans and squash, um, which is a turtle island tradition. Uh, we follow the Haudenosaunee method of intercropping these, these amazing uh, foods, you know, corn, grows tall and provides support for the beans, the beans fix nitrogen, the squash shade out weeds and also produce a mild natural pesticide. Um, and we plant herbs amongst 
But we've also tried to do that with some crops that that aren't usually intercropped, like doing lettuce underneath our brassicas, uh, for example, or mm. alley like alliums on the edges of rows, and trying to make that fit into a system where you have to harvest at a commercial pace, because that's often the challenge. Is like, well, how do you do an intercrop when you need to just you know go down the row and get two hundred heads of lettuce? Um, so we're experimenting with that. Another example is semi-permanent raised beds, um, which come out of the uh, Ovambo people of what is now Namibia. Um, and we use these to control water, you know, to warm up the soil, to have better drainage, um, control weeds and so on. Uh, oh, so many. We use certainly George Washington Carver's uh, leguminous cover crops on a rotation so that. Oh, yeah, yeah those are marvelous. Right. Like he was amazing. Like he's famous for the peanut, but um, a lot of people don't but understand so many why. other innovations. Like, yeah, So many things. And the peanut, he was like, the peanut is a magical alchemist. You know, it takes elemental nitrogen out of the air and turns it into an organic compound in the soil. Like that's the limiting factor in growing in most places is having enough nitrogen. So, so, but I think of it a lot in terms of, you know, when you ask about human community and what we can learn from, from all of this, um, there's a there's an investment in the long term with all of these practices. It's like we're really calling life back into the soil in a way that's going to improve this land like long after we're gone. So rather than an industrial ag, which just depletes the soil year after year and drives away the biodiversity, you know, we're planting some nut trees that are going to be there for the next generation and we're repairing soils in a way that they'll be there for the next generation. And I think that that's probably the strongest parallel um, with human community is like, rather than just thinking individualistically or short term or a capitalist growth model, like how are we really thinking um, about the legacy that we're leaving um, in terms of relationships and community for our children and our children's children and beyond. Fantastic. Now, I, well, one of the things that you had mentioned back there is something that we struggle with all the time, too, and that's finding that delicate balance between the efficiency of production in a market garden and the diversity needed for a very resilient ecosystem that is, you know, creating more topsoil and healing the land. How have you sort of found that balance? And what are the goals within your farm that sort of set the parameters as to how much efficiency versus diversity you can you can manage? I mean, one thing, um, and you, you, I'm sure you know this as a farmer, is we've chose a marketing model that really is pro-diversity. So we do almost everything through a CSA. We call it our Ujama Farm Share. Ujama is a Kiswahili word for cooperative economics. Um, it's affectionately termed Netflix for vegetables. But the idea is that we have these, these households that are members, and every week they get a diverse box. Um, we have had to do some creative marketing because some of the crops that we want to grow are revival crops. So people might not be used to eating amaranth, mm -hmm. you know, for example, even if it is a heritage crop. Um, and so one of the fun things we did this year that was really successful is with these heritage crops, we tried to grow as many purple varieties as possible because Black Panther came out. Everyone's about it. And vibranium is purple. And so we started talking <laughs> about like the superpowers of these crops related to the nutrients they have and making a parallel to vibranium and its superpowers for like healing and power in our community. Oh, that's fantastic. So it's like purple cauliflower and purple kohlrabi and purple amaranth and purple corn and all, so on and so forth. And people were about it. They were like, where's my vibranium vegetable for the week? I can't wait to eat it. <laughs> so, you know, you still do have to be creative because, you know, everyone theoretically wants to eat all these 
ancestral foods that they've never seen, but maybe in actuality need a, like a little, a little boost, a little encouragement. And so we've been able to like, you know, work the diversity into our, our marketing and our um, consumer base. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, amaranth is uh, native to this area of Central America too. And mm. we grow some in our area, but uh, the the Mesoamerican Institute of Permaculture on the other side of the lake actually have a full cooperative amaranth flower production model. And wow. uh, it's, it's really beautiful what they're doing, um, getting indigenous communities to work with indigenous foods once again, and showing that there's value in these things on an on a international market as well. Oh, that's incredible. Do you all pop the amaranth or how do you um, distribute it? Well, so they process it in different ways. And uh, frankly, I haven't gone over to see the facilities that they have, but the the packaged products that they have are wonderful. And we help to distribute them on this side of the lake as well. Um, we also co-teach our permaculture design certification courses with them. So we sort of split time between our farms over here and their operation over there as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. All right. So let's switch gears a little bit here. And I want to talk about your final chapter in the book, White People Uprooting Racism. Now, obviously, this institutional issue that our country has, even though I don't live there anymore, <laughs> is something that everybody has to participate in dismantling. Can you talk a little bit about how the white community can participate in a productive way in fixing this? Yeah, absolutely. Um and I'm so glad you brought that up because Farming Well Black is certainly for, for everyone. You know, it wasn't black folks who created a racist food system. Um, and so certainly we can't dismantle it all by ourselves. And so I put a chapter there, especially for, you know, allies and accomplices who are interested in supporting this healing and repair. Um, and I would say, you know, just a couple of things. The most important to think about thing to think about um, in terms of what white folks can do is to center and support projects that are led by Black Indigenous people, which sounds so basic, but obviously the folks impacted by racism are the ones who should be taking the lead because we know how to solve the issues, we know what needs to be done. And so figuring out who is leading that work in your area and offering whatever skills and resources you have, whether that's money, you know, time, and understanding that it might not always be the glorious tasks. You know, we, we, it wouldn't make any sense to go into a community of color as a white person and say, oh, I know what you need to do and I can be the manager of your project. You know, it might be that you're filling the coffee pot and doing childcare to start and that's perfectly fine. Uh, we need to, again, be transferring land, resources, and power to the descendants of those from whom it was stolen. Um, and in my book, I do provide, you know, a, a big list of, of uh, black and, and indigenous led projects. I think another thing that we can um, really be doing is advancing some of the policy demands of the black and brown community. You know, for example, right now in this in this nation, in the United States, you know, over 85 percent of our food is grown by Latinx farm workers. Yet only two and a half percent of farms are managed by Latinx managers and our labor laws are excluding uh, farm workers from a lot of protections, child labor protections, the right to unionize, the right to overtime pay, the right to a day off in seven, and even the minimum wage is different for farm workers, and there's no minimum wage federally uh, for farm workers working on a small farm with less than seven employees. And so that's, that's just a disgrace. And so that's just one example of a policy change that is being demanded you know, by the people, black and brown people who are actually working the land and, and, and to look at those and call your senators and representatives and, you know, su support petitions and, and resources going towards changing these laws that fundamentally make the food system unjust. Mm, yeah, those are important observations and how many different communities this affects. 
So with all these things going on in our our national politics and some of the very negative and hateful messages coming from the current administration, what are some of the things that you're observing that actually give you hope that things can get better and within a reasonable time frame? (laughs) Well, it's funny. I think we don't really have any uh, choice other than to hope um, (laughs) because, you know, what kind of life would we be living if we didn't believe that we could win? But something that really encourages me is that um, despite what's going on at a macro level in politics, and we did win back the House, so that's exciting. But but despite all that, if you look at what's actually going on in the grassroots, you know, there are so many folks from our communities who are actively engaging with their own health, with their relationship to land, feeding their communities. You know, you go to the Black Farmers Conference, and there's 800 people there who are all just doing powerful things. Um on the land and supporting each other. And that gives me so much life. You know, at this last conference, just a couple of weeks ago, I asked the audience um, during my speech, you know, how many of you are black and love the earth? And this little five-year-old child like gets up on the chair, puts two hands in the air, is just like, I'm black and I love the earth. And you know, there's elders and there's babies. And it really feels like we're part of this this great upswell um, of the returning generation. Um, so I do believe, you know, despite all of it, that we absolutely will win, that we are winning. Um, and and a lot of those wins might be at the micro right now, like person to person, farm to farm. But if you look at the USDA census for the first time in the last sentence, there was uh, the last census, there was a tiny um, increase in the number of of black farm managers. Um, and that's that's the first uptick since early 1900s. And so that's really powerful. And it gives us a sense that this this grassroots change is really going to eventually shift the tides um, at a macro level. Wow. Well, I really appreciate the message that you're helping to spread and the empowerment that you're showing, not just uh, through your farm, but also through this book. Before I let you go, could you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you, find the farm and where they can purchase the book? Absolutely. Um, So we'd love to hear from you. You can find out about all of our programs and opportunities to get involved on our website at soulfirefarm.org. And you can buy the book from uh, anywhere where fine books are sold, including IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, though they're a little problematic, um, or right from the publisher, Chelsea Green. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today, Leah. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. I hope we can do a follow-up in the future. I'd love to keep uh, in touch about how things are moving forward on your farm and your operation and possibly even collaborate at some point. I would love that. And I wish you the best with your baby goats and all of your other enterprises on your farm. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right. We'll be in touch. You have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at 
or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge Podcast Facebook page, to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.